This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by the all-new 2024 Lexus GX. You ever pick up a piece of gear that inspired you to up your game? My first full suspension mountain bike was like this. So plush and fun, it changed riding a bike from something I thought I'd never forget how to do to something I realized I wanted to do better. The all-new Lexus GX is an exceptionally capable rig that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. With available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, and multi-terrain select, the all-new GX is rugged on the outside, refined on the inside. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Or go to Lexus.com slash GX to learn more. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. So, Mike, are you ready for this? Uh, what, what are we doing again? We're sitting around a campfire, telling stories. Oh yeah, right, yes, I am ready. And because, as you say all the time, Outside is dedicated to celebrating our misadventures, these are going to be stories about when things went very, very wrong. Uh-huh, because those are the ones you remember, because they teach you the most. I knew you were going to say that. It's true. Did I ever tell you my Alaska sailing story? Mm, I don't think so. Uh, you would remember. Okay, so it was like 15 years ago, and I was with two friends on an old 30-foot sailboat for 10 days in southeast Alaska. One of these guys was a great sailor, and we were hopping between these remote islands, hiking in a beautiful wilderness, fishing. We saw tons of grizzly bears. It was amazing until we had this one really windy afternoon when we had just gotten back on the boat, and we were heading through this tight pass, and there were these nasty rocks on both sides, and all of a sudden, boom, the wooden tiller on the sailboat snaps right at the base. <gasps> no way. I am freaked out, but my sailing buddy jumps into action, and he basically uses the sails to steer us out the pass as best he can. Then he heads below deck to dig through his tools and spare parts, and he leaves me in charge of the sailing. The conditions are getting nasty, right? And my other friend is starting to look not so good. Like, he's turning green, and he comes to me, and he says he's going to start throwing up. So we end up having to tie him into a harness so he can puke over the side rails and not fall overboard. Ugh, rough. It was bad. I mean, there we were. There's, like, no help around at all. And anyway, eventually, my sailing pal, he rigs a new tiller out of plumbing parts. Whoa. And then just before sunset, we made it to a calm anchorage right next to Hot Springs. Now that is a classic template for a misadventure tale. It started off smooth sailing, and then things went horribly wrong, but it all turned out okay in the end. You might even look back and laugh. I, I do laugh every time I see that friend who is tethered to the boat yakking into the ocean. I always bring it up. It, uh, it brings me never-ending pleasure. <laughs> Would you take another trip like that now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was incredible. Even better. So now I want to bring on our first storyteller. 
gonna stoke the fire a bit here because I told her to bring s'mores. Ooh. You know Ariella Gensler, Outside's associate gear director? Well, it turns out she has her own epic misadventure story. You're gonna like this one. I only have one question for you, which is, what is your greatest misadventure in the outdoors? Basically, I don't like mountain biking. And yet my boyfriend, now fiance, convinced me to buy a cheap mountain bike and then convinced me to go on a 13-mile mountain bike ride on this, like, high mountain pass loop in, um, where we were living in Colorado at the time on, like, a rainy day in, like, middle of June. And we were like, oh, it's a rainy day. It's, like, summer. Like, let's go for a mountain bike ride. I was like, great. Of course, we stupidly forgot that there's still snow at 13,000 feet in June in Colorado. And so we got, like, probably five miles into this 13-mile ride, like, just far enough that we were like, well, like, let's just see what's around the next corner. And then, you know, another mile, and the snow is just kind of, like, getting a little deeper, a little deeper. It's, like, patchy, but it's, like, getting deeper. And by this point, we're, like, easily halfway through. And we're like, okay, well, this is clearly going to be, like, snowy the rest of the way, but we're also halfway through the ride, so it's just as long to keep going as it is to turn around, so let's just keep going. And this loop, like... It, kind of goes like down through a valley and then you kind of go up one side of a really exposed ridgeline that tops out at like 12,000-ish feet and then go down the other side. And so we get to the like basin to the bottom of this ridgeline and we're just looking up and it is just like a complete snowfield. It's like a two-track like jeep road and you can't even really see where the jeep road is in cut because the snow is so deep. And so at this point we're just completely pushing our bikes up the side of this 12,000 foot pass through deep snow. It starts snowing and also thundering at the same time. And I should also mention that because we thought that we were going to go for like a leisurely, like midsummer bike ride, we were both wearing shorts, mesh running shoes, short sleeve shirts. And then the only layer that I had was like a really thin long sleeve and like a rain shell. So at this point, like my feet are numb, my legs are bright red because I've been punching through like crusty snow for two hours. My fingers are numb because I don't have gloves. I am crying. I am declaring my hatred for mountain biking. Multiple times I like put my, put, I hurl my mountain bike to the side of the non-existent trail that I can't see. I hurl it to the side and like dramatically declare that I want to just leave my mountain bike here. I'm never going to touch it again anyway. And it'll just be faster if we can just run out of here instead of pushing our freaking bikes. And like very patiently, my boyfriend is like, okay, pick your bike up. And I'm like dragging it behind me. I'm just like making a a stink. I'm convinced that we are going to have to like spend the night out here because at this point we've been out like four hours longer than we thought we would and there was at the bottom of this mountain pass before we had started going up we saw this abandoned old like basically log mining cabin with like so creepy like a bullet riddled refrigerator in the yard and like no glass in the windows just like curtains like flapping in the wind like the thundery wind, you know? And I'm like, oh my God, we're gonna have to spend the night in this like creepy mining cabin. I'm gonna lose my feet to frostbite. Like I'm gonna die out here. I was really convinced I was gonna die. Then we see mountain lion tracks in the snow. (laughs) And I basically just completely lose it. And there's this like one lone tree halfway up the side of this ridgeline that we're going up and so Hayden's like let's just my boyfriend is like let's just get to that tree and so I'm like 
crying, like looking all around for this mountain lion that is really nowhere to be found, but I'm convinced that it's stalking us. Convinced that we're gonna be left out in the dark, I'm gonna lose my feet and I'm just, we get to this tree and he makes me sit down. He like wraps my feet in his like one dry layer. And I'm like sitting there, he like is like force feeding me like our like only food, which was like M&Ms and like cashews. I had left my bike like a hundred feet down the trail in one of my like dramatic declarations of hatred for the sport, sat under this tree with my feet wrapped in a shirt, eating M&Ms and cashews while Hayden goes back to retrieve my bike for me, sets it down and then we just like sit there while it's like thunder booming all around us and snow is falling and I have no idea like how how much farther we have at this point I'm convinced that we've like entered Narnia and this loop is going to last forever and we're never going to get home and the mountain lion's going to eat us and like basically long story short like the misery continued for like another hour like finally convinced me to like get up put my like wet socks and shoes back on like get back out into the snow like keep pushing my bike up to the top of this ridge line we get up to the top of the ridge line then we realize the top of the ridge line is actually the halfway point of the ridge line and we have to go all the way around like this big contour around this like big kind of like cliff face but we like eventually like find our way to the actual top of this ridge line and it is sunny and like the snow has started melting and we like ride our bikes down the other side and get home and like eat a gross amount of Chinese food and it was all fine and now I can laugh about it but at the time I really thought I was gonna die. Uh, have you mountain biked since? Yes, but not in the snow. <laughs> and what what did you learn from this experience? Um, that there's still snow at 13,000 feet in June <laughs> in the Alpine, which I already knew, but I just had to learn it again the hard way. And to always bring long pants and dry socks <laughs> when I'm going into the Alpine. Yeah. Yeah. And that Chinese food solves everything. <laughs> I could really go for some Chinese food right now. You should just eat some of these s'mores, I'm telling you. Mike, you need to slow down. Seriously, it's getting out of hand. Wait, do you have three marshmallows in your mouth right now? Maybe. <laughs> Our next story comes from outside contributing editor Gloria Liu. It's another tale involving mountain biking and unpredictable mountain weather, but this time the stakes are even higher. Sounds delicious. So my greatest misadventure, well, one of them at least, was about... Eight years ago, I was uh, traveling through Europe and I got it in my mind that I wanted to ride my mountain bike around Mont Blanc, uh, which is the highest peak in Europe. And I was going to follow this route called the Tour de Mont Blanc, which of course is a really famous through hike that takes you through three countries, France, Italy, and Switzerland, crosses multiple mountain passes, and it's really gorgeous. Uh, it takes most hikers seven to nine days to finish it, and not a lot of people ride it, but I somehow got it in my mind that I wanted to do that. The funny thing is that I had like never even done an overnight bike tour before, so I didn't have any experience with bike touring or bike packing at all, but I was not to be deterred. I was on a specialized rock hopper, which was a really entry-level aluminum hardtail mountain bike. And I had just a backpack and I just had, you know, pretty run-of-the-mill old bike clothes. I had a really thin rain jacket, which I'm telling you now because it will come into play later. So my plan was that it would take me about five days 
to do most of the tour. I set off and I almost immediately get lost. And <laughs> the thing about the Tour de Mont Blanc is that it's really not made for bikes. And there are just some route choices you can make along the way that can either make your life as a cyclist easier or harder. And I almost immediately made a route choice that had me hiking my bike for hours. And I remember at the end of that first day, I was just so demoralized by how little progress I'd made that I like at one point sat by the side of a road and just cried. But nonetheless, I persisted and I was spending the night at huts along the way. So I didn't have to carry a tent or a sleeping bag or anything. And so I got to the first hut. It was, you know, warm and cozy and comforting and the food was amazing as, as it is in the European huts. And so the second day started out way better. I was riding through some really beautiful scenery. I rode up and over this pass from Switzerland into Italy. And it was really cool because on one side of the pass, everybody was saying hello in French. And on the other side of the pass, everybody was saying hello in Italian. And I was riding through just some of the most amazing views I've ever seen in my life. Unfortunately, on the third day, my fortune turned and a big rainstorm started. And remember how I didn't have a real rain jacket? Well, what I had was basically this really, really packable like rain jacket for road cyclists. And it was like paper thin and I was soon drenched. I had nothing to like protect my lower body. I was just like in mountain bike shorts. I remember there was so much water in my shoes. It was like sloshing around, squishing around my feet. At one point there was so much water on the road I was on that I was going downhill and the water was like spraying up and blinding me. It was spraying against my face and like I couldn't even keep my eyes open some points because it was like there was so much water in my eyes and I'm freezing and, and yeah, so I was in a pretty bad situation. I think I, I made it to a hut that night, dried everything off, and then unfortunately the next day the storm continued and I was drenching wet and I remember just thinking like, I really need to get, like my hands were freezing because my gloves were soaked and I was like, I really need to get some kind of like water protection. So somehow like on one of the huts along the way, I got a hold of some rubber kitchen gloves and some plastic bags and I like put these rubber kitchen gloves over my my bike gloves and I cut up the plastic bags with the help of some of the people at the hut and stuffed them into my shoes to try to create like a water barrier. And this is how I made it through. And that night, unfortunately, I remember I spent the night up at a hut that was really high and the rain turned into snow. So now I was in like a full on snowstorm and I was kind of like stranded up at this hut and I really needed to decide what to do. I remember sort of debating it over that night with some really nice folks who were up at the hut, including this one man who was Dutch. But the next morning, I, I remember getting up, I just dressed in all the clothes I had. And I was standing at the front door, looking out the window at all the snow, just like all geared up, ready to go, not wanting to go. I remember he asked me like, why are you doing this? Why are you going out there? I said to him, because I don't want to quit. And he said, well, that's just like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and I, that really stuck with me and kind of caught me because I think up to that point I had never the concept of setting some big goal and then not finishing it or quitting was really foreign to me and I was like wow like I don't have to finish this like all this time I felt like it was so important to finish things because it proves that you're strong and you don't give up but like sometimes it's more important to be smart than it is to be strong and I made the decision to go down and and you know bail on my my tour and 
that ride down was one of the coldest bike descents I've ever had. Like it was pouring rain as soon as I left the hut. It was probably in the 30s or 40 degrees, but I was so cold on that descent and so wet. I remember I just like, my abs were like convulsing from how cold it was. Like I think maybe it took me 45 minutes, but in my mind it was like interminable. I think there was a lot of lessons learned from that <laughs> misadventure. You know, I learned about how important it is to prepare for the worst, especially in the mountains. I learned that you need to have a really good rain jacket. <laughs> Thank God for that one Dutch guy who was like, dude, why are you doing this? Yeah. Funny enough, years later, I remember reading a report of a guy who tried to be, I can't remember if he tried to be the first person to fat bike that route or he just tried to fat bike it. And he actually slid um, into a crevasse with his bike. And I can't remember if he was rescued or not, but yeah, I, I'm really glad that didn't happen to me. <laughs> And I, I think I remember looking and seeing that it was on that section that I ended up bailing on. So, oh, my God, you know, I think I made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> I still like there's still part of me that wants to go back sometimes and, and do the whole thing, if only because I feel like, oh, my gosh, what an awesome experience it would be to do this on like a nice bike with real uh, rain clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Marin. I, I feel like our colleagues should know better. I mean, that's two in a row heading out in the mountains totally unprepared. If only they'd had s'mores. <laughs> yes, I'm telling you. But our next story is a different kind of misadventure. Your old friend Nick Heil is going to talk about the time he almost died while hanging out with a presidential candidate. Oh, I like the sound of that. But first, we need to take a short break. I will be right here waiting. Brought to you by Lexus. There are things you can own that do much more than their stated functions. Things like a professional-grade kitchen range or an aerodynamic carbon fiber bike. The truth is, exceptional things inspire you to do exceptional things. They push you to reach higher, to go farther. To this select list, we add the all-new Lexus GX. You don't buy it just for the life you have, but also for the life you want to have. Its exceptional capability will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed, making plans that were once outside your scope. But as much as the GX challenges you, it also spoils you. Its intuitive technology and luxurious features mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to it. The all-new Lexus GX. Hey, Marin, check this out. I figured out how to toast eight marshmallows at once. Uh, be careful. That's a lot of sugar to burn in one spot. Nah, nah that's fine. Look, they are so perfectly golden brown and... Uh, uh, my marshmallows! Ah! <laughs> Outside Magazine contributing editor Nick Heil, you have a misadventure story for us, yeah? Okay, yeah, I have thought about it. There's peril, there's some sort of like sideways activity. It involves a presidential candidate <laughs> for the United States. So that's probably good. <laughs> All right. I can't wait to hear it. I'm ready. So this this particular incident, adventure, misadventure took place 
back in 2012 and it involved a story assignment with Outside. Outside reached out to me and they wanted to write a story about a guy named Gary Johnson. And Gary, for those who aren't familiar with that name, is the former two-term governor of New Mexico. He lives here in Santa Fe and I, I kind of knew him. You know, he's a, he's a, a big adventure athlete. He climbed Everest and competed in like Ironman triathlons. He was a super serious cyclist and he, he really, really loved to ski. Anyways, I, I thought this sounded like a great potential story and sure enough, signed on and agreed to go with Gary to Manchester, New Hampshire, where he was going to announce his candidacy. So the other component to this trip was that Gary, in addition to, you know, being a new presidential candidate, you know, announcing his candidacy in a coat and tie in the city square, was also going to go to Mount Washington and ski Tuckerman's Ravine. And Tuckerman's is, you know, it's a classic area for backcountry skiers. It's kind of on the north face of Mount Washington. It's this big, broad ravine. And it's a serious ski run. For the most part, pretty much anywhere in this basin is a very, very steep headwall. And if conditions are good, lots of people go up there. It's a very popular destination. It's certainly a, a ski run that warrants bragging rights. And I'm not sure if Gary had actually ever skied it before, but he definitely wanted to ski it on this trip and, and kind of make sure people realize that not only was he a, a serious presidential candidate, but he was also a very serious outdoor athlete. So off I go with Gary and I'm, I'm hanging out with him, watching him talk at the town square, announce his presidency, lots of applause, big crowd, et cetera, et cetera. And um, not really thinking much at all about skiing Tuckerman's. Now I'm, you know, I love to ski. I consider myself a fairly accomplished skier. And, you know, I really kind of dismissed Tuckerman's as being sort of a novelty outing and something that obviously wasn't going to be overly dangerous because this guy is a presidential candidate. And he has lots, you know, he has lots of things that he has to do in the weeks ahead. So, you know, I'm just very relaxed and very casual about this whole thing. You probably know where this is going. <laughs> and it's like fall, like early fall. It's, you know, it's a gray day. It's not like, it's not like intimidating weather, but it's, it's definitely like a little gray and blustery and it's cold. And, and when we first take off on the trailhead, you know, there's probably like a couple miles where you, you hike in to get, just to get to the bottom of the basin. There's this big entourage and like, it's, you know, Gary's friends and some handlers and, you know, some fans of his, and, and there's probably 30 people that are, that are just kind of doing the hike. And, and as we start to get into the trail and, and hiking up the trail, people start to fall off. And by the time we, we finally get all the way up to the ravine, it's dwindled down to four of us. It's me, it's Gary, it's a young guy who is the son of one of Gary's advisors who lives in Salt Lake City and is who is a professional skier. And then a fourth guy who is really what amounts to like kind of a random fan of Gary Johnson's from New York. <laughs> and he's on a snowboard, we're all on skis. And I'm still not, it's not even really clicking with me that what we're doing is a fairly serious 
mountaineering objective because nobody had really nobody really talked about it in that frame at all. Even Gary was very like casual and laissez-faire about it. I knew it could be serious. You know, people die there. It's not, you know, you can have a very good time Googling Tuckermans and seeing all of the carnage of people falling and sliding down that face. But we get up to Tuckermans and it's a beautiful environment. You know, it's a, it's a big, broad basin, you know, very scenic. And you kind of, you kind of pop out near or above tree line. And then you have a very steep ascent. It's substantial. It's going to take a couple hours to get up there. And we're looking at this big bowl and I'm like, okay, you know, that looks all right. The one thing that's, that's striking me is that there are very few people up there. And everything I knew about Tuckerman's is that it's a very popular place. And we kind of get to the bottom where we're going to start the steep ascent up the headwall. And there's a few people gathered around and there's some, you know, general banter. And, and most of the people are sort of like, mm, you know, it doesn't really look like a great day to be up there. And I and I'm I'm looking at it and I'm like, huh, it does look a little shiny. <laughs> and when you're when you're a skier and you're looking at a very, very steep mountain face and it's shiny, that's an indication that it's potentially very icy and very potentially dangerous. It doesn't take much to catch an edge or lose an edge. And once you slip onto your side, if you're on a steep, icy face, you can start sliding very quickly and you can slide out of control and who knows where you're going to stop. And there are parts of Tuckerman's that are 50 degrees, maybe even a little bit more. And 50 degrees for those who don't ski and don't ski on steep terrain is it seems like a sheer, it's like the face of a building. So here we are, the four of us at the bottom, looking up at the face, hearing sort of the banter around the base area and kind of thinking like, huh, you know, not entirely sure if this is a great idea, but we're also thinking we can go up and take a look and sort of assess as we go. And at this point, you know, we're we're putting on crampons onto our ski boots. We have ice axes with us. So we start going up this one part of the ravine, which is the typical route that people use to ascend it. And it's steep. It's so steep that I'm looking up at the guy in front of me and I can see the bottoms of his ski boots. Like he's putting the toes of his boots in these steps and I can see the bottoms of his of his boots. And this is the easy part. And, and the thing I'm noticing as we're going up is that the conditions are extremely firm, like to the point where you know, I'm having trouble kicking my crampons into the, into the snow. It just felt like concrete. So now I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel a little bit legitimately nervous. You know, I'm kind of like, I don't know what this group is going to want to do. And I, and I'm thinking like, oh, we're, we're definitely going to turn around. We're definitely just going to like carefully walk back down this route that we came up. And sure enough, the group wants to keep going. And I'm starting to think like, you know, I've, I've done some pretty, burly adventures. You know, I'd been to Everest. I'd climbed up, you know, to the North Pole at 23,000 feet. I'd mountain bike through Afghanistan. I'd skied all around the world. I'd, I'd been in some very like, you know, steep skiing situations. And this felt like something I had not encountered before. It just felt, it felt dangerous. But, but I'm like, I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm committed to be with this group. And I'm just like, oh, you know, like I could just see that the headline, you know, like, 
presidential candidate skis Tuckerman's while adventure journalist backs away and goes home with his tail between his legs. So I'm feeling like I really need to like hang with the group. Well, we get up to the top of the head wall and now things are real. Like we are, we are committed and it is like, it's like a horizon line. I mean, we might as well have been in, in boats looking at a waterfall because it just falls off into no man's land. And it feels like the snow is even firmer. Like it is, it is just boilerplate ice. I am, you know, I'm like, I'm like trying to punch my ski pole into it. And it's like, tink, 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 tink. <laughs> you know, it, it is, it is scary, hard conditions. And you were getting closer and closer to the steepest part of the run. And I'm, and I'm thinking like, th this is like a for real, no fall zone. If anybody slips right there, they are just gonna rock it to the bottom of this thing. And it's, you know, I think it might be a thousand feet down that face. It's, it's big. At the bottom are all these rocks. I mean, it just looks like the gaping mouth of a great white shark just waiting at the bottom to swallow you. And I'm like, oh God, you know, this is bad. And, and, and now, I'm, now I'm at the point of being nervous and flat out scared that I'm like, I don't care if these guys ski it. I, there's no way I'm going down this. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to just going to put my crampons back on and, and hike out of here. But the, the first guy to go is, is Gary's friend, the pro skier from Salt Lake. And, and he very elegantly like m makes his first turn into it and kind of makes these big sweeping turns down the face and, and makes it look kind of easy, you know, like, like he's such a good skier that he's like, able to manage this and I think is so used to extreme terrain that it doesn't really phase him. <laughs> Gary's kind of quiet and he's looking at it. And the guy from New York on his snowboard is looking back at me like, like, bro, what are you going to do? Are you going to go? You know? And I'm like, ah, God, I don't know. And we're, we're both kind of looking at Gary and wondering if he's going to do it because now it's like, now it's decision time. You know, now it's like, you're, you're going to plunge into this thing and go for it or you're not. And, I, and I'm still not sure if, if Gary's going to do it. Well, sure enough, he slides into this thing and is kind of side slipping and is, and is, you know, obviously like being very, very cautious and making kind of like safety turns for lack of a better term. And he manages to kind of combat ski his way down this thing. Unlike the other guy, the, the pro skier, it doesn't look easy. It looks scary and it looks hard. And I'm like, oh man, well, the guy from New York, next thing I know he's going and I'm like, okay, well, I'm the only guy standing up there. And what am I going to do? You know, like I'm going to have to ski this face and I'm terrified, you know, like to the point where I've got Elvis leg, you know, the knees like shaking back and forth and thinking like, oh man, like you cannot blow it here. You cannot blow it here. Like this is just absolute, has to be 100% on. So there I am sitting at the top of the, the run and I start sliding out over the, the lip of this ravine and I feel my edges start to, to give out. I'm still on my feet, but I'm, I'm sliding down this slope sideways. It's called a side slip and, and people use this technique intentionally except for me it was not intentional i was i was actually not able to get my edges into the surface then i'm like oh this is it like this is this is the end and i slide on my skis 
in what must have been the ugliest performance on a ski slope in the history of skiers. I don't, I don't, to this day, I don't know how I was able to not just fall into my side and slide down, except that, <laughs> you know, maybe there was some like magical force keeping me upright, but I side slipped down this thing for, I don't know. I mean, it felt like a hundred feet, 200 feet. It felt like a ways. And then maybe the slope started to just change ever so slightly, or maybe the the surface just got a little bit less firm, but I felt my edges start to bite in and I'm able to just kind of navigate my skis to this point where I could get enough purchase on that icy slope to bring myself to a complete stop. You know, if I were a slightly older man, I'm sure I would have just had a heart attack right then and died instead of actually like sliding all the way down to the bottom and dying. Because it was just one of those moments where I'm like, wow, I just made it through something that I probably should not have made it through. And I just had to sort of like sit there and take deep breaths and be like, all right, you know, finagle your way over to this, this area that just seemed a little bit less terrifying and you know, just do this one turn at a time. And that's what I did. I would be like, all right, make this turn, make that turn, make this next turn, make this, made the next turn and, and pick my way down. I don't know how long it was till I got down to those guys, but it was a while. I was so humbled and kind of humiliated because they had kind of done it, you know, and, and I had survived it, but barely my respect for presidential candidate Gary Johnson at the time, uh, was elevated considerably after that experience. I just had to kind of like sit there when I finally made it down to them and lay on my side and kind of regroup and realize that like, oh man, like I just made it through this thing that was very, very dicey and dangerous and okay, it'll be good for the story. Wow, it's getting late. I guess we should turn in. Got that big group hike tomorrow. You know, I probably should have checked the forecast. Mike, do you want to do the credits? Mike? Uh, What? Oh my god, you had a sugar crash, didn't you? (sighs) This episode was written and produced by me, Marin Larson, and edited by the inventor of the S'moresstick 8000, Michael Roberts. If you have a misadventure story you'd like to tell on the show, we want to hear it. Send us an email at podcast at outsideinc.com. The Outside Podcast is made possible by our Outside Plus members. Learn more about all the benefits of membership at outsideonline.com slash pod plus. We're offering new members a 25% discount. Just enter the code pod25 at checkout. Mike. Mike. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm up. I'm up. I'm, I'm, okay. <laughs> you gotta get in the tent, dude. The bears are gonna eat you. You're like a walking s'more. Thank <laughs> you.